Hello, this is Dr. Ed Hill, host of This Week in the Word, where we grow in our knowledge of the Word of God and our walk with Christ. I'm glad you joined us today. We're starting a new series called Telling Time for Beginners, and this is the very first episode. It's Sunday, July 3rd, 2022. I'm glad you're here with us. You found us at Dr. Ed Hill podbean.com. That's the home of this week in the Word. Hey, do you remember when you tried to learn how to tell time? That's before digital clocks when you could look at it and see the numbers. But back in the old days, we had it tough, let me tell you. Somebody would give you a clock with Roman numerals on it. All right, wow, that's terrible. Or even worse, they would give you a clock or a watch it didn't even have numbers on it. It just had March, you know, like a mark for 12 o'clock, one for 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock. Man, that was tough. <laughs> but eventually we learned how to tell time. And you know, once you've learned how to tell time, you can easily tell the time by any clock. You know what I'm talking about. Now, I'm an official Army brat, and maybe some of you are too. And the military has very special ways of telling time. For example, 11 a.m. in the civilian world is 11 a.m. But in the Army, it's 1,100 hours. And that is just how it's done in the Army. In the Navy, they do it different, of course. And 11 a.m. in the Navy is 11 bells. And it's even true for their men's division, the Marines. Now, the Air Force has a very special technical way of telling time. It goes like this. 11 a.m. is when Mickey's little hand is on the 11 and his big hand is on the 12. <laughs> hey, I'm just kidding, everybody. You, we all know that the Air Force doesn't tell its own time. It has someone else do it for them, right? Absolutely. Well, listen, we're talking today about telling time for beginners. Did you know that about a third of the Bible is prophecy about future events? Future to the time it was written, or even a lot of it, is still future to be fulfilled. Now, one thing that's very interesting about Bible prophecy that has been fulfilled already, which is a lot, is always fulfilled literally. For example, when it was prophesied that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Guess what, ladies? It wasn't $29.99. It was exactly 30 pieces of silver that Judas was paid for to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. It's literally fulfilled. But when it comes to preaching and teaching Bible prophecy, you know that most pastors and churches are just like an Arctic river. They're frozen at the mouth. Concerning the most enormous, comprehensive global event in the future of the world, we hear nothing. Crickets. Now, what pastors and church members would never, ever do to the Bible with scissors like cut out parts of the Bible, they do it every Sunday with a deafening silence. 
I remember years ago, I went to a church that I served as a new pastor, and I discovered that the pastor before me, I didn't know this, but he had been an amillennialist. That means, uh, and I don't want to get too technical here, but it just means that he believes something different about the reign of Christ than most of the church. And I'm not talking about that church, I'm talking about most Christians believe. Man, did that ever cause problems in trying to preach Bible prophecy there. I had so much teaching from the Bible that I had to do to make up lost ground. You know where he got that from? Probably from a seminary. Now, I've been to seminary, but I went to one that taught the truth of the Bible just like it is. And do you know why pastors and churches are so silent about Bible prophecy? You want to know why? They can't tell time. That's why I call this telling time for beginners. If you don't know how to tell time relating to Bible prophecy, then you are a beginner, but that's good news because you can start somewhere. You can start today and you can grow in your knowledge and ability to tell time relating to the Bible and Bible prophecy. All right, all right, all right. Let's learn to tell time, people. The first verse we're going to look at today is in the first book of the Bible, a historical book. No matter what anybody tells you, it was real space-time history, just like we think of a historical event. And in that, after Adam and Eve fell, we know that story. If you don't, you can read it there in the early sections of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3. But in chapter 3, after they've fallen and man is now plunged into sin and hopelessness at that point, God comes with hope. And God says to them in Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity, that means like war, hostility, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. So he's telling uh, the serpent that, and this ultimately is Lucifer, who's at war with God. So that war that began in heaven when Lucifer rebelled, and a third of the angels rebelled with him, but two-thirds of the angels, amen, remained faithful to God. But when that rebellion came, then he came down to the earth to destroy the wonderful creation that God had made on the earth. And hasn't he done a great job? Yeah, all the problems in the world that you see today, you can lay at the feet of Lucifer because that's where the blame belongs. But mankind has cooperated very closely with Satan, with Lucifer. But God says here in Genesis 3.15, as man, uh, Adam and Eve, two real people who were innocent prior to this, they stood in their fallen condition now. God says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Now that is a biological impossibility, but God is predicting here that he will send the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer, who of course will be the Lord Jesus Christ, in the future in the Bible, of course, he's already come as we look back, 
but Jesus will come to undo all the damage that Satan has done. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head. That is, Jesus crushed the head of Satan on the cross when he died for our sins and his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. And when we trust in him and his finished work on Calvary, on the cross, we can be forgiven. Amen. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, whereas Jesus crushed the head of the serpent, of Lucifer, of Satan, at the cross, and the proof of that was he rose again the third day, proving that his sacrifice was acceptable and received by the Father, Satan only bruised the heel of the Lord Jesus because he rose again. What a great victory. But I want you to think about what we've just read. Let me make some, uh, what we call extrapolations. Let Let me give us some takeaways from what we just read. And we see this starting from that point in Genesis, and it goes all the way through the Bible, all the way to the end of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. There are two great streams in human history. Number one, the stream of sin and death, which Adam and Eve were plunged into when they rebelled against God, they disobeyed God, and all of their descendants are born right into that, the stream of sin and death, and there is the stream that God told us about right here in Genesis 3.15 of the Savior and deliverance. And they were forgiven when they trusted this promise from God. So all people now are born in that stream of sin and death. But when they choose Jesus, they pass over into the new stream of a Savior and deliverance. I wonder, have you crossed into that new stream? Or are you still in that old stream that all of mankind with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, all mankind is born into of sin and death. So there are two great streams in human history. But listen carefully. This is important. There are two peoples in the flow of human history. Now, why do I say that? Well, very quickly after Genesis 3, we see that there are two lines of people that begin to populate the earth from Adam and Eve. Remember that um, they had two children initially, Cain and Abel. And in the Bible, in space-time history, this really happened. Cain murdered the very first murder. And guess where he got that idea from? Lucifer, from Satan, from the serpent, right? Can you see how the serpent is already doing his damage on the human race, introducing murder through Cain. Cain murdered his brother Abel. In time to come after that, Seth was born to Adam and Eve, and he replaced the the obviously murdered Abel. So now there are two people 
groups, two peoples in the flow of human history. The line of Seth, that is a spiritual line that loves the Lord and serves the Lord. And you have to, you're not born into that physically. You're born into the second line, the line of Cain. That is the natural line, which is lost in sin and death and still needs to cross over to the line of Seth of a Savior and deliverance. Now, if you don't understand all that completely yet, that's okay. Just remember the big idea. There are two great streams in human history, sin and death or Savior, a Savior and deliverance. And there are two peoples in the flow of history, the spiritual line of Seth and the natural line, the rebellious line, the lost line, the sinful line of Cain. Now, when we know these facts that I've just gone over, then world events and the Word of God become understandable. Finally, we can tell time. And we certainly can begin to learn to tell time. Can you say amen to that? But you know what? Do you know that when it comes to applying this proven principle I've just explained to you, do you know that ignorance and apathy are the two biggest problems with that? Well, Pastor Ed, I don't know, and I don't care. See, you just proved my point. (laughs) Ignorance and apathy about what I just said are two of the biggest problems here. And generally speaking, even among people who profess, who say they're Christians, even among so-called pastors of Christian churches, the sad thing is they can't tell time. They have no idea what time it is on God's clock because they don't understand hardly anything that I've just explained. They think the book of Genesis is just a fairy tale. It's given to us to explain why the world is the mess that it is. I hope that's starting to make sense to you. You know, when we think about trying to fix our misunderstandings, it's, it's sort of like taking your car to a mechanic. And after a few minutes of, of probing around on the car, maybe he even use, uses a computer in high tech, whatever. You know, in the old days, they would look around and poke around and listen and all that. And that was pretty amazing how they could tell. But in a few minutes, they'd say, well, there's your problem. And it would be whatever it was. You know, an alternator, a fuel pump, you know, your oil pan was leaking oil, whatever it might have been. Well, there's your problem. Well, let's take our car into the spiritual mechanic's garage. And the spiritual mechanic probes around under the hood, and finally he says, there's your problem. Your hermeneutic is all messed up. We need to fix that. Herman who? (laughs) Hermeneutic. It's just a big word, and all it means is how you interpret the Bible. It is your way of telling time. It is your system, your method for reading the word and, listen, reading the world. That is the events in the world. And when your hermeneutic is all messed up, then your ability to tell time is twisted beyond recognition. 
and you need your hermeneutic fixed. So we're going to do that right now. Now, when you approach the Bible, whether you're a Christian or you're not, you may be an atheist, you may be Hindu, Islamic, you may be an Orthodox Jew, you may say, I don't even know what I am. I think I'm nothing. Great. When you approach the Bible, listen to me, understand this, that the Bible has literal meaning, not allegorical meaning. Now, is there allegory and metaphor and similes and parables and all of that in the Bible? You bet. But we, we read the Bible literally, and in reading it literally, you say, well, obviously this is a parable to teach me something, right? And you do that because you're reading it literally, and you say, okay, clearly this is trying to teach me something I will better understand with the help of an allegory or a parable. I hope that makes sense. But listen, write this down. Yeah, that's right. Write this down. When the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Okay? When the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Now, I'm trying to think of a, a good example of that. Um, let's say uh, it that we should not take the Lord's name in vain. Don't approach the Bible and say, whatever could that possibly mean? It means what it says. Don't use the Lord's name in a vain way. And if you're doing that, stop. Wasn't that simple? Yes. <laughs> when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. When, um, I'll give you another example. When the Lord says that we are to go the second mile and he gives a story in telling that, don't try to agonize over what that means. It's right there in the story. It's in what he's telling, right? That we, that we should, uh, the, the literal application of it is when the, Roman soldier ordered a Jewish citizen to pick up his pack and carry it a mile, which he was entitled to do. And if the Jew didn't do it, I assume he could be beaten or killed. The Jew is to pick up that pack and carry it a mile. And Jesus said, go, go two miles. And so we understand that the, the Jewish person could go right out and apply that. And they would learn the lesson of don't just do what you're what you're required to do, do more than you're required to do. And so there's a lot in that, but the, but the plain sense is that they should be willing to do that. All right, now the literal hermeneutic understands metaphor, allegory, parables, etc. The literal hermeneutic, the literal way of interpreting the Bible, of, of uh, telling time from the Bible, to having a method or a system for reading the word, the literal hermeneutic lets the Bible say what it says. It, it doesn't like, um, it doesn't say, well, what 
mysterious hidden meaning could be in this. No, when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. The problem is, when we talk about telling time relating to the Bible and world events, the vast majority of preachers, pastors, and churches do not have a literal hermeneutic, but they have a, what I'm going to call a theological hermeneutic. And do you know who did this to them? The great teacher of Christianity, Augustine, or Augustine, as many people call him. But the problem with Augustine is this. Although there is a lot to learn there, this is a problem that he created. He spiritualizes almost the entire Bible. And this has become the accepted theological method of interpreting the Bible for almost everybody, except people like me who take the Bible in its plain sense and seek no other sense. Now, if I read it and I say, well, all right, the plain sense, that doesn't make sense. Uh, let's say like a parable. Then I am to let the Lord show me what he's teaching me there. But I'm not to take everything and spiritualize it. Please understand that. For example, in Psalm um, 56, 3, I believe it is, it says, what time I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. Whatever could that mean? Don't do that. It means that when fear comes in your heart, say, Lord, this thing is making me afraid, but I'm going to trust you. That's a good example of that. Don't turn it into some allegory or parable or some like, what mysterious hidden meaning could this possibly be? No, do what it says. And we all have many opportunities every day to do that in this world, especially today, right? Now, let me give you a very good example of what I'm talking about. It, it is literal when the Bible says Israel, it means Israel, the Jewish people, the nation, unless it obviously means something else. The plain sense clearly means something else. But a theological hermeneutic like the one of Augustine replaces Israel with the church. So every time Israel is mentioned, basically pastors and churches in that tradition are, are saying their heart and mind, okay, that's talking about quote, the people of God, that's not only Israel, but that's the church. It's not really it's the church. The church is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. No, it's not. It is not. But that's because Augustine helped create, well, he created that system. Now, let me give you an example right out of the Bible that shows this cannot possibly be correct, that Israel means Israel and the church means the church and to replace Israel with the church is not correct. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 31 and 32, we read there, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. 
So that's all the normal activities of life, right? Don't spiritualize it. It means what it says. But that's not why I picked this passage. Verse 32 is why I want you to hear this. Give none offense. That is, you know, live a life so you're not creating problems with everybody around you. Give none offense neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish world. Uh, listen, if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile, guaranteed. <laughs> There's only uh, two, uh, in that sense, two races in the world, Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, right? Neither to the Jews nor to the church, uh, excuse me, nor to the Gentiles, watch this, nor to the church of God. Here's a third entity that's not Jewish and it's not Gentile. We know from the New Testament it's one new man, a new creation of Jew and Gentile, right? To reconcile both to God. We know that right out of the New Testament. But what I want you to focus on is Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right here, lists three people groups, <laughs> if you want to think of it that way, in the world right now. There's people who are Jewish, who are not yet believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are people who are not Jews at all, and they're not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, so Jews and Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Notice here that the Jews are not replaced with the church. You see that? If you don't understand it, ponder that a few minutes and the light bulb is going to come on. Now, let me give you another example. Christ promised several times in the New Testament that he would return. Even the angels, when he ascended, promised he would return. The book of the Revelation promises he will return. Do you know that these, a lot of these pastors and churches even spiritualize that? Well, he's here with us in the Christ spirit. And in that sense, he is returning. We are to love one another. No, Jesus is coming back and he's not coming back to take sides. He's coming back to take over. And as far as the world looks at it, it will be what's called a hostile takeover. They don't want him to come back. But he's coming anyway. That won't stop him. Now, in the Gospels, the return of Christ is the major emphasis proclaimed openly to the world, to, the, to those who believed in Jesus and those who didn't. It was there for everybody to hear and see as a warning. But in John 14, on the night of his betrayal, in the upper room, we see in John 14, verses 1 through 3, that the rapture is revealed privately to only his disciples. He did not teach this publicly. He taught about his, his return. And let's say, I'll be fair about it, even if he alluded to the rapture, it wasn't clear like this is right here. Read this with me if you have the Bible in front of you. John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Now, by the way, in the Greek, um, also 
can be even. So he could be saying here, which is true, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, like God the Father, believe even in me, because he's saying he's God. You get it? You understand that? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. So there's, there's many rooms and dwelling places there, right? In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, again, right here, don't spiritualize this. He just told us, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, is the word. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. This is a location. This is a physical place that we can live in with him. It's literal. Verse 3. It gets even better. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now think about this. If this was talking about the return of Christ, and he came back at that time to the earth, whether his disciples were still alive or had passed away, they would be resurrected and they would be with him on the earth, right? I don't think I ever saw this before till right now, but that's not what he says. I mean, of course, that would be true, but that's not what he's talking about. If I go and prepare a place for you, you know, wherever it is he's going, right? And that's explained uh, further here in John 14, but we're not going to read it right now. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, again, if he was coming to the earth, they would already be there with him, right? Think about that. But they're, they are going to go to be where he is. There ye may be also. Isn't that incredible? So the return of Christ is very obvious in the Gospels, but the rapture, for example, here, and many believe this is the first mention of it, by the Lord in the Gospels. Um, this, is, this is privately shared with uh, the disciples on the eve of his betrayal to encourage them and strengthen them. Now, that's the return of Christ, but he mentions a rapture right here as being different from the return to the earth. Now, the rapture of the church, where is that mentioned? Well, I believe it's first privately shared with his disciples right here in what we read in John 14, 1 through 3. But then after that, after his resurrection and the church is born, the rapture of the church is publicly taught to the church. Now, let me show you where. I'm going to read a passage that probably the last Christian funeral you went to is very possible that you heard this passage read. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58. So the Apostle Paul, who wrote more of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote that New Testament, a great bulk of it, he wrote this too. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, that is our human body, right? That flesh and blood, 
cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. This Greek word, that's mystery in English, means something that is it's a truth that's been previously hidden or concealed, not known. But when you're initiated into the mystery, it is revealed, it is opened up to you, it is made known to you. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. You see, when you think that, that we all owe a death, generally that's true, but there is going to be a generation of Christians alive at the time of the rapture of the church who will never die. And that's what this says. We shall not all sleep. Sleep's talking about the Christian death. But we shall all be changed. Wow, this is something we haven't seen this clearly in the Gospels before, right? That's right. Because it is progressively revealed in the New Testament. Verse 53. For this corruptible, that is me and my human body, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So we're taught here about what we commonly call, and, and we'll see here in a moment, the Bible calls the rapture of the church. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. Paul writes here to the church at Thessalonica, they were a little confused about this and worried. They thought maybe they had missed the rapture. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. So I'm at the lost. And he's talking here also about the believers in Christ who had already passed away. The Lord had not come yet, and they died and the living believers were worried about them. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus, and that word if is the idea of since, so you can read it, since we believe. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now, a lot is packed into this verse. If I die before the Lord returns for the church, 
my body is buried, right? But my spirit and soul go to be with the Lord. And when the Lord returns in the rapture, I'm coming with him and my mortal body will be raised. This is before anybody's even raptured. Uh, our dead bodies will be raised and, and we'll be given a new body. I don't understand a lot about that, but I believe it. And all the pain I'm in lately, I'm excited about that. How about you? Amen. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Now, Paul may have been talking about John 14, verses 1 through 3 that we read, or the Lord Jesus Christ could have given him directly additional new revelation that he writes about right here. I don't know which, and it doesn't matter because it, we're told the truth here. For the Lord himself, so it's not a, just an angel coming, Jesus is coming. You know, we're not going back to normal. <laughs> Normal's not coming back, Jesus is, amen. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. That word shout means like a, like a military command, an order. And maybe it's like when he told Lazarus, come forth, he said, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> Lazarus had no choice but to be resurrected, amen. And many have said before me, and I'm sure you've heard it, but it's a great point, place here to make this point, that he told Lazarus only, to come forth, or everybody dead would have come forth. But here, I don't know exactly how he's going to do it, but he's going to command that all believers, and they're, they're with him in soul and spirit, but their bodies will be resurrected, right? The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So the Thessalonians shouldn't be worried because even those Believers who had died and they were with the Lord spiritually, their bodies would be raised before the living believers were even raptured, okay? So there's no worry, none, period. But watch verse 17. Then, and I think all of this happens like, bam, bam, all right? <clears throat> then we which are alive and remain, that idea means the leftovers, <laughs> we're still here because... Uh, dear brother so-and-so has been resurrected and his new bodies reunited with his soul and spirit, right? But the leftovers, that's us, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. Now that word there in Greek is the Greek word harpazo. And in when the Greek was translated into the Latin Bible, the word used there, I believe I have this correctly, is repair. And that's where we get our English word rapture from. But both words, the English word and the Latin word, go back to this Greek word, harpazo. So, when a know-it-all tells you, well, the rapture's not in the Bible, it's right here in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, harpazoed, let's say in English. Now, you know what that Greek word means? To violently snatch someone, like to snatch them out of danger. If you saw your child wander into the street 
and a car was coming down the street, you would set a new Olympic land speed record in rescuing your child from that danger. You would snatch them out of the way. It might startle them, but they would realize you saved them. That's what this word means. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Notice we're in the clouds where? To meet the Lord in the air. He doesn't come back and touch down on the earth at this point on the Mount of Olives. That's in the return at the second coming. We meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Many have said that the rightful eternal home of the believer in Jesus is heaven and the eternal home of the Jewish person who believes in Jesus will be on the earth. I don't know how far we can press that, but it is interesting to see here that we will ever be with the Lord and we meet him in the air. Isn't that interesting? Now, verse 18. The doctrine of the rapture is not given to scare us, is given to comfort us. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Oh man, I I am so comforted. You know that lately, every single day, I think, I long for the Lord to take his bride, the church, home. And I believe if you're a truly born-again person, you think about that a lot as well. And you are looking forward to him and his return. But let me give you one more example. In Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle John wrote the book of the Revelation. Many see in this an example an allusion to the rapture of the church because in chapters one through three of the book of Revelation, I think I'm right in saying, I might be right on the number, but I'm pretty pretty sure I'm right. I think it's 19 times the word church is used in the first three chapters of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. But here in chapter four, verses one and two, Many believe that John, representing the church, is raptured. Let's read it. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. (laughs) And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Now, I believe that this is alluding to the fact that the church is taken off of the earth prior to this seven year tribulation, the 70th 70th week of Daniel, when the Lord turns all of his attention on the nation Israel. You may not see it that way yet, but the the word church does not occur again from chapter four um, on. And I, 
I would have to check this out to be sure about this. I'm not sure it occurs again in Revelation. Yes, it does. It's the, uh, well, put it like this. The bride of Christ is the church, all right? Now I'm getting all messed up because I didn't look that up. So we'll all check that out together, right? You check me out and I'll have to remember to check that out myself. But the point is that from Revelation 4 to 19, before the Lord comes back, we don't see the church on the earth. When it was mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of the book of the Revelation. Listen, it, when the church is taken out of the world, God's focus goes right back on Israel. Israel is God's timepiece, and Daniel and his prophecies pretty much make that clear. Israel is a modern miracle right in front of our own eyes. It went out of business as a nation, literally, for 2,000 years, and God resurrected it as a nation. It is now a nation again. Even its language had gone out of existence until people relearned Hebrew and taught it to the Jewish people. And it was never supposed to exist again, except God said it would, that it would be here in the end times. And Daniel said that, and here it is. Born in one day, just like God predicted on, what was it, May 15, 1948. Wow, right in front of us. Pastor Ed, Pastor Ed, if this is true, how come pastors and churches still can't tell time? <clears throat> That's an easy one. Because of something in the Bible called the apostasy. That is a word that means the falling away from the historic Christian faith. Some even see in this an allusion to the rapture, and it may be both, and both would be true. I've always tended to view it as the falling away of the church from what has previously been believed by Christians of all ages since the birth of the church. Did you know today that only about 15% of professing Christians agree with historic Christian truth. <laughs> Only 15%. I think that's from Lifeway Research. And when you talk about the rapture of the church, only 36% of professing Christians believe in the rapture of the church. And did you know that a full 25% of professing Christians do not believe in a rapture of the church at all. That's incredible. Now, what time is it? Well, you tell me. <laughs> I think as I look at the Bible, and I can tell time looking at the Bible, and I look at the world, I think we might be at five minutes till midnight to the rapture of the church and then the tribulation and the return of Christ. Why do I say that? Well, this word, this concept, alignment. So many things are predicted to happen in the last days that when we see them begin to happen and things lining up, a convergence of these many events, I think I can say that things are not falling apart. Things are falling into place. 
Let me just give you five. The apostasy that I mentioned, that's obviously happening. Things that are completely weird are happening in churches and things that are vile and immoral are happening with the full blessing of churches. Tell me there's no falling away from the historic Christian faith. Number two, there would be an alliance in the last days. We know this regarding um, Ezekiel. Um, I looked this up to make sure I got it right. Ezekiel 37 and 38. There's going to be an invasion of Israel and God's going to miraculously rescue Israel. This has never happened. And it will involve uh, many countries, but primarily Russia, which guess what? There's no Soviet Union. There's now a what? Russia. This will involve Russia, Turkey, and Persia. Oh, Pastor Ed, you're so silly. There's no Persia today. Hey, in Iran, they call their nation Persia. Get it focused. So the apostasy an alignment between Russia, Turkey, and Persia to eventually invade Israel and be destroyed by God supernaturally in Ezekiel 37 and 38. That has never happened, but it will. A third thing is the World Economic Forum's Great Reset. The Great Reset, and I'm not making this up, go read it yourself is a global government that they want to come yesterday. That's predicted, though, in the Bible, that in the last days there will be a global government that rules over all the earth. Daniel predicted that, and is predicted in the book of the Revelation. And a fourth thing is the Pope and the leaders of the world religions are all getting together to create a global religion. This is predicted in the Bible, and we see the beginnings of it right now. And number five, digital money. You see, if I can remove cash and money is only digital, then whoever controls the digital controls the money, and freedom dies. The Bible predicts a global financial system that if you are not part of, you will not be able to buy or sell and you will be locked out. This is being put in place and it is openly talked about. Now the Antichrist will ultimately put it in place and use it to his advantage. But what time is it? I'd say it's five minutes to midnight. You know, when you think about this whole idea of, of telling time for beginners, maybe... Maybe you're saying, well, I'm not sure I believe all this. I'm not sure I understand all this. It was sort of like David and Goliath. Goliath didn't believe that rock could take him down, but that stone sunk in his forehead and brought him to his knees and he fell face down on the earth. David took out that dude's own sword and cut off his head. <laughs> God doesn't need you to understand or to agree with him for him to fulfill his word. Now, do you know why, if you refuse to believe this and teach this, let's say you're a professing Christian or even worse, a pastor who isn't teaching this, you know why? I know why. You're afraid that you will look foolish to people. Well, I've got good news. 
You already look foolish to people, so go ahead and believe the truth of God. Amen? It's sort of like the guy, uh, true story, a guy was carrying a suitcase in a train station, and on the side of the suitcase it said, a fool for Christ, and people smiled at it and mocked him. But you know what it said on the other side of the suitcase? Whose fool are you? Amen. Listen, some of you need Christ today as your Savior and Lord. Others of you already know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You need to get with the program and start believing God and His Word and quit uh, watering it down and start taking it for what it says. We, I believe, are five minutes from midnight. I'm not date setting, but man, the alignment and convergence we're seeing if it doesn't stop, it's leading exactly to what the Lord predicted. So listen, if you need Christ, call this number, 877-247-2426 and find out how to have Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and you can know for certain how your eternity will turn out. Instead of following Satan and being condemned with him to an eternal hell, you could follow Jesus Christ and be welcome into heaven and eternity with him. In Romans 3.23, we hear these words, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I hope you will trust him as your Savior and Lord today, my friends, before you pass away and it's too late or before the rapture of the church and you don't go and you miss it and it's too late. Thanks for listening today. Please like this episode, follow the podcast, and share it with someone else today. I'll be back next week with another episode of This Week in the Word. Bye-bye.